Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Boy Joy podcast. Uh, you've got me here in sunny Newcastle, Kieran, and... And me in also sunny, picturesque London, Ainsley. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Ainsley. Um, today, uh, oh, very spe- oh, a topic dear to my heart and a person dear to my heart. Um, so in a few days' time, it's James Baldwin, it's what would have been James Baldwin's birthday. So for this episode, we wanted to look at a few of his works and just talk about them and with each other. And we've not discussed them before. Um, so we're going to look at If Bill Street Could Talk, both the book and the 2018 film. And we're also looking at Giovanni's Room. Uh, so I think Giovanni's Room is from 1956. Bill Street's from 1974. And they're both quite different. Um, we've just both read them. So it'll be interesting to see what we think about them. Do you know what actual date um, James Baldwin's birthday is? Yeah, yes, um, August the 2nd. August so what 2nd. We are, so okay. Saturday coming, yeah. Okay, is that, uh, that probably means... should have said, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. He'll be 96. <laughs> he'll be 96. Also, he would have been 96. Um, I remember actually when I first read one of his books, you know, at the start of a Penguin book, they have like the, the biography, of, a little biography of the author. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking, oh, I wonder if he's still alive. Blah, blah, blah. Then he got to the end and he died in 87. I was like, oh, okay. Three years before I was born. Um, so, <laughs> no, no chance to meet him. Oh, well. <laughs> right. So, should we, get, should we get right into it then? We should indeed. Uh... So, um, as Kevin said, we've literally spent like this last week just like furiously reading, watching Jane Baldwin's um, works on TV screen. We're starting with um, Bill Street Could Talk, if Bill Street Could Talk, to give it the proper title. And we should say uh, right now that this whole podcast episode will contain many, many spoilers. Absolutely. Yeah. So, So, I I don't know if anyone listened to um, our earlier podcast episode with A Little Life, but the same thing applies here. Um, If you haven't read uh, If Bill Street Could Talk, watched it or if you haven't read Giovanni's Room and you're planning to you're planning to do so with any of them then I would say like skip to the end listen to another one you've got you've got 20 episodes you can you can find one of those to, um, to entertain yourself with this one might not be for you but for everyone else <laughs> <laughs> welcome <laughs> everyone else can come in and join the conversation <laughs> So um, I would describe uh, If Bill Street Could Talk as essentially a love story. A love story between um, a boy and a girl um, named Alonzo Hunt and Clementine, I can't remember her last name, but they go by Fanny and Tish. Mm -hmm. It's a first-person story. And they live in um, a suburb of New York, like a pretty run-down sort of like ghetto suburb of New York. Um, when we meet the two characters, uh, Fanny is wrongfully imprisoned for a crime that he didn't commit, and Tish is um, is his kind of like long-suffering uh, partner, girlfriend, who is fighting hard with her family and with his family to try and get him exonerated. Mm-hmm. Um, you said it was um, written in the seventies, and I think it's quite contemporaneous. So that means that, like, I think it's there at the same time it was written in. Um, I certainly yes, get yeah. that feel from it. I noticed he um, he mentioned a few songs in there, uh, mm-hmm. and one that 
So you mentioned Aretha Franklin's Respect. So I had a quick Google trying to work out when Respect was released. It was like late 60s. So he, yeah, he's, re, he's sort of referred to the time that he was writing in pretty much. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I got through If Bill Street Could Talk. Well, actually, it did take me a bit of a while to get to the end of it, considering that it is like quite a short book. But I don't think I'm putting that on the novel itself because mm-hmm. I actually really enjoyed reading it. And um, I thought that it was interesting enough. I thought that the writing was just like, the prose itself was right, it was easy to read. You could like pretty much drink it in. I just think, I don't know why it was. I just mm-hmm. I think, you know, when you have to do something before a deadline, and you like keep putting it up and like, yeah. oh, I'll read a bit, read a bit later until like you don't give yourself quite enough time to think that's what I did with this book. I, I struggled to settle into it, I think. Um, I saw the film in the cinema in early 2019. I think it came out in 2018. Uh, mm. I hadn't read the book. Then I read the book recently now. And it's strange because it's not often that I'll read a book after having watched the film. Um, mm. And I watched the film again to, to remind myself what it was like. Um, I think I struggled to set it, settle into it, um, but I did enjoy it ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I, what I will say about this book and Giovanni's room, they're both quite heavy, to be honest. They're, they're very yeah. different and they, sort of, yeah. they deal, deal, deal with different topics, but they're not, they're not happy novels um, <laughs> at all. But um, this one, because it is, it is a love story, but for me, um, I thought primarily it was about sort of systemic injustice. Um, oh, really? Or maybe they have, e- they have equal, actually, no, they have equal weighting, to be fair. Because mm-hmm. um, obviously the, the, two, the, the main characters are Bonnie and Tish and then um, sort of Tish's family. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole novel, the shadow of the whole novel is the fact that Bonnie is being, is that he's in prison and they're trying to get him out and it just looks like, it just looks ever hopeless for them. For them and that casts a really big shadow on the novel. Um, mm-hmm. Which is like, as it should, I guess, because that's what he wanted to deal with. Um, but it, yeah, it's it's kind of a tough read from that, but like emotionally, because it is you you know that it's he he's written as realistically as possible, and it's not supposed to be like a fairy tale. Yeah. It's supposed to be real and and gritty, and you know you you kind of feel like well, we're not going to come out of this with a happy ending. Yeah. Um, but that's part of its appeal, I guess, as well. It's just very raw, I think. Yeah. Emotionally. I think one um, an interesting thing already is that like when we've both read this book and it seems like the like the first thing that we think of are two very different things. But I think in the novel itself they go like alongside each other hand in hand. So for instance, I was talking mm-hmm. about like the love story about um, Tish and Fanny going up with each other, going up together, falling in love, like like wanting to get married and build a family together which were just like, really, like, that was the fairy tale aspect of it, I guess you'd say, is that, like, you never, like, in real life, you never really read about, like, a love story in the way that they, they, um, they had it where, like, you'd have someone that you're, like, you're both, so, obviously, the both childhood sweethearts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And those bits were actually just so, like, really nice to read, and that to think that, like, I am not really a big fan of, like, things being overly sentimental, but overly, overly dramatic. But I don't think mm. it was. I think it was just like it was just really lovely and really like really heartwarming just to see, just to see these two these two characters devotion to each other. But then you are mm. very right that it does run alongside this whole this like complete like um like search for justice that they're trying to get throughout the whole uh, throughout the whole novel. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what makes it a bit more warmer, is that on the one side, you have these two people love each other. But on the other side, it seems like the, the society that they're in, the city that they live in, everything is kind of working against them. Yeah. So I'm trying to jog my memory of what happens in it. But we so we start off with, I think we get, we get details little by little, don't we? So we know Farley's in prison, but we don't know. For, it's quite a while till we find out why exactly he's in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, also opens up with, uh, with Tish visiting Farley and telling him that she, she's pregnant. Mm-hmm. And then she tells her family. And then so the main, the main family, we've got two families in this. The main one is Tish's family, mm-hmm. who are obviously all very supportive. Um, they've known Funny since he was a kid. They've got love for Funny. They, they kind of treat him as their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Tish tells her family that, um, that she's pregnant, they decide to invite Funny's family over, the Hunt family, mm-hmm. who are very different people. Um, yeah. <laughs> <so> <laughs> <laughs> we kind of, quite early in the novel, we get this big showdown between them. So, then I think, so Frank's, is it Frank? Frank's name of Fanny's father, isn't it? I Frank. think so. Yeah. So he used to be a tailor, and um, he's not anymore. Um, so he, yeah, he ran a tailor shop. He sees eye to eye with the members of Tish's family. But then you've got Frank's wife. What is her name? They just call her Mrs. Hunt, I think. I can't remember her first name. Is Mrs. Hunt. I can't remember her first name a, either. A, a, a woman of God, um, <laughs> but like ostentatiously so. She's very self-righteous. She's, she thinks she's drenched in the gospel and the Holy Spirit. She's what, you know, you know talk about the, when they talk about the Pharisees in the Bible, the mm-hmm. ones who wear the faith on the chest and tell people how they should be living. So it's, it's, um, she has like a performative faith in, in Jesus. Definitely. Um, and then her, her two, uh, two daughters who are, who are very stush. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <and a> bit, <laughs> very stuck up, a bit odd. Um, and they've, they've got all the airs and graces, um, Mrs. Hunt and then the two daughters, that's Adrian and Sheila. And yeah, they're very stush. Um, and so we get the showdown between the two families. So Tish's family are very supportive, but as soon as Tish tells Mrs. Hunt and, and the Hunt family that they're having a baby, the father, Frank, is happy about that. But then Mrs. Hunt, all of a sudden, she just says, oh, well, who's going to look after the baby? You know, with her. With her so she, say, she says something like, that um, the Holy Ghost is going to rock that baby in your belly or something yeah. like that. Yeah, she said, yeah. She tries, to, she tries to curse the baby. Yeah. Um, they think, they don't think much of Tish or Tish's family and they don't think much of their son, Funny, either. Sorry, the women, not, not, not Frank, the father. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have any time for Funny. They don't, they don't seem to be very sympathetic to the fact he's in prison. Yeah. It's like they almost, they feel like it's almost his own doing as well. And I found that so callous as well. Yeah. Um, it really, it's really shocks you on the pages. You see the contrast between the two families. One's like all about love and support. The other is about sort of a garden salvation. And that's what matters. It's, it's more than that. Yeah. It's like it's punitive. It's like punitive as well. And mm-hmm. I think you are right when you said that like um, Fonny's family, his mom and his sisters, they are definitely like um, the type of people that like, Although he didn't, he didn't commit the crime. I think it, it felt, it felt like that really wasn't, it wasn't really what they were concerned about. It was like mm. the life that he was leading was leading him down that path of like not righteousness, and, and him going to prison was just like a consequence of that happening, irrespective yeah. of whether he actually deserved to be there or not. I the think it would have happened anyway. It was only a matter of time. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, there's this big showdown between the two families. Um, 
And also, I remember that showdown when I watched when I first watched the film um, mm-hmm. back back when it came out. Um, so it ends up with basically Tish's family cussing out Mrs. Hunt and <laughs> and, and the daughters. Well, basically, yeah. And then obviously um, Frank backhands Mrs. Hunt at one point when she when she tries to curse the child. She, what did you say? The Holy Ghost is gonna suck out the child from your womb, something like that. He says, "The Holy Ghost will cause that child to shrivel up in your womb, but my son will be forgiven." My prayers will save him. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah, that's what she says. So it's like she's kind of sort of prophesizing and sort of setting a, a curse as well. Yeah, um, like for which her husband slaps her and she yeah. collapses to the floor, um, and it just deteriorates from there. Really, the men. So, so is it Joseph, the uh, Tish's dad? But yeah. Joseph and Frank leave the scene and leave yeah. the women to kind of deal with the fallout. And then we just end up with um, a sort of a back and forth between um, the daughter, between the daughters from both families, mm-hmm. um, and the, to the point where <laughs> you know, Ernestine, the older sister, she follows um, the two other daughters to the to the lift. Yeah, and she's literally just shouting out all sorts of expletives and words on them. And also, I think when this would be published, it would be what, early seventies. Yeah, um, it wouldn't have been unheard of. But I guess he didn't see like the c word and also all sorts of curses written in in pe- on, on the page like that. Yeah, but. Um, Obviously, it's a highly charged situation, but that sets the scene really. And then we don't really hear much from that side of the family for the rest of the novel because mm-hmm. they don't want anything. They don't want anything to do with this baby, um, yeah. apart yeah. from the dad. But, um, I liked that they showed that contrast. Um, between them. I think is it is it a classism thing as well? I, I get the feeling like no one's rich between them, but I get the feeling that Farnie's family maybe have a bit more money because they used to, or they used to, or the dad used to run a tailor shop. They kind of looked down on Tish's family for being poor. I, feel like I would reckon this family is particularly rich. But, yeah, mm-hmm. I would reckon that it's probably not a thing to do with class. They're both poor. They're both poor. They're both they live in the same neighborhood. Like their children mm-hmm. are together. It's like everybody knows someone. Like we all know someone like uh, Mrs. Hunt. We all know mm-hmm. like you know that woman in church, man, who's always yeah. singing the play, singing the plays is the loudest. Got the most judgment with people always slandering people um, when they can left, right and centre. But when she goes home to her own life and it's miserable and mm. all sorts of things are going on. But, um, it's like it's just trying to like make up for her like lack like make up for their own deficiencies by taking it out on other people and then using like um the word of God or the Bible or um religion to beat someone or beat someone with and to feel superior. Yeah. Yeah definitely. Right. Like, you know, like, you know, I, I know, Kieran, that you've met people yeah. like me. Oh, definitely in church, definitely. It's always one with the brightest suits on and the biggest hats. Yeah, exactly, always, always yeah. <laughs> And I, like, I can imagine the two daughters having, like, a permanent sneer on their face. Just, mm. like, um, in their, like, freshly pressed, uh, pressed coats of looking down yeah. on people. I have to say, I thought in the film in particular, um, Adrian and... and... Sheila, so Mrs. Hunt's daughters. I thought their casting was perfect. Yeah. And also, um, I also think Fonny was casted perfectly as well. He's exactly mm-hmm. how I pictured him. Mm-hmm. I think he, I think the actor's even bow-legged as well. I wasn't sure, but um, he looks exactly like how I, how I pictured him. Um, obviously, like I am in love with Regina King. who played the mom in it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I think because I watched the film as well before I before I read it. I kind of paid a bit more attention to the mother character in this in this book as well, mm-hmm. and I thought Regina King's performance was so brilliant and she captured yeah. her so well. 
but I wonder if I'd think the same of the character from the book if I'd read it before I'd watched it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I know what you mean, because it, it does tend your depictions of people. It's weird, because even though I saw the book first, I said, so even though I read the film, even though I, I saw the, the film, film first, <laughs> yeah, I am... Um, I think Farney was perfectly casted after reading the book, but I'd forgotten what he looked like in the film by the time I read the book. Mm-hmm. But then when I watched the film the second time, I was like, yeah, they've gotten the spot on I thought. Um, and yeah, she had a very strong um, you know, presence in there, Regina King did. Yeah. I liked... Um, so fast-forwarding a bit, when we find out the more details about, about why Farney's in prison, we find out Victoria Rogers is the girl who, who was raped, mm-hmm. and she has sort of identified funny in from a from a rigged witness lineup yeah regina king's character the, the mother she goes to puerto rico to um to find victoria riders and try to convince her and i liked that um I, I i could vaguely remember in the film when i was reading the book now um but i liked that whole i think it was really tragic that part of the, of the story was yeah but it show it was showing the intensity of a, of a mother's love and also it's um Funny is her son-in-law. It's not her flesh and blood. Yeah. But because she cares for her daughter, and he's pretty much part of the family as well, he mm-hmm. needs to feel that strong love there, that she's willing to go somewhere by herself, like a woman alone. Yeah. In, a, in the current country, doesn't speak the language at all, and try and fight for him. Yeah. Um, they change slightly in the book. So do you know when she meets, um, his name's Pietro or something, the, the partner of Victoria Rogers? Yeah. She meets him in that nightclub he owns. And I think part of the poignancy is the fact that he's supposed to be the same age as Fonny, like 22. Yeah. But then when you watch the film, the actor looks about late 30s, the guy that played the dude in the yeah. film. Yeah. Um, but, she, but in the book, she like beseeches him like to, um, to, to help to get, them. Yeah. yeah, exactly. To try and get Victor and look at the picture to try and change the testimony. And he, yeah. just says, he, he considers it for a bit. He sees the plight and whatnot. So he says, you know, I'm a mother of our son. Do you think I'm alive? Do you think I want to make you suffer? And then at the end of it, when she really asks him to help, he's just like, no, and he walks off. In the mm-hmm. film, they kind of changed it a little bit. Because um, I think in, in the film, he arranged for her to meet Victoria Rogers, where in the book, he turns her down, and then she goes to meet Victoria Rogers separately off her own back. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it, was, it was just difficult. And I think also, you know, Victoria Rogers, she makes a comment when, um, when the mom's questioning her. She makes a comment about, oh, you know, it's clear that you've never been raped before. Yeah. Because in the fact she's trying to fight for, um, for funny. Yeah. She was lacking a bit of tact because she needs to remember she's talking to a woman that was raped essentially, and it's very yeah. traumatic for her. Yeah. Um, but it was realistic in terms of how that was done. Like she, she obviously she had the purpose being there because she wanted to protect her family. Mm-hmm. But she's forgetting that this woman's been through like you know a really terrible ordeal. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just it's just tragic. It was, it was very realistic, though. Um, yeah, tragic. I agree. Um, with that scene, when um, when Sharon does go, Sharon Tish's mom travels to mm-hmm. Puerto Rico, and I think like when I was reading it, in the back of your mind, you're thinking like, please just like let her be conv- like try and convince her to change her story mm-hmm. so um, Tish and Funny can like just live happily ever after, like ride off into the sunset or whatever. And I yeah. just like it's a great it's great for the story that like that doesn't happen and it stays pretty much true to how it was. But yeah. then as you were saying that like that really brings up that theme of injustice that like yeah. is present almost probably from the start to the end of the novel. And it's I think it's the most pronounced then 
Because when mm. uh, when she starts going, then um, Victoria starts like going hysterical, and like she and she has to leave. She has to leave. It just makes mm. it just, like just lose hope. The dead end, isn't it? Yeah, that's what yeah. you smell. Because they said that she she kind of lost her mind, um, and that they were taken away, and then actually couldn't testify. She could she couldn't stand trial. So finally, finally, we're just going to stay in prison for for the foreseeable. Um, yeah. And they set they set bail really. They granted bail, but it was set really high. Um, I can't remember whether he whether he. It's unclear whether he got out or not, isn't it? I think you kind of think he didn't get out, but it's not really concrete in, confirmed, is it? In the book, and so in the book, it doesn't say whether he whether like they had succeeded or not. But in mm. the movie, it does. In the movie, it confirms that he took a plea. Um, another really interesting bit in it is when um, Fonny meets his friend, is it Daniel? Yes. Um, yeah. And he comes back to his house and he's like just come out of prison himself. Mm. And he was telling him about like what it was like spending time in prison and like all the all the horrors and traumas that he went through again for a crime that he didn't commit. Yeah. That was like really, really heavy. That was- that was really deep, yeah. So I think they fa- was it they found marijuana on him, and they tried to frame him, saying that he stole a car, even though he doesn't drive. Then he's talking about he must have been raped in prison, um, yeah. And the one comment he says is that they essentially, you know, they're just fucking with him because they know that they can, yeah. And that's the theme that you, you get that throughout the book with the way Fonny's treated by that friggin' Officer Bell, yeah. Um, so I think Danny and both Danny and Officer Bell were represented really well in the movie. Um, with the with the scenes with Danny, they were quite well. They're intense in the book. In the book, they're described sort of generally, but they are intense when you do get the speech. And in the film, there's this really long scene between Fonny and Danny, Daniel when he's and Danny when he's it's Daniel and not Danny, Daniel between Fonny and Daniel in the book in the film. They're talking about his time in prison, and they're both smoking. Yeah, and it, it goes on for quite a while, and yeah. they're speaking really in really low tones, but it's super intense and um, it's really dark as well. And he's yeah. talking about his time there. But it broke him, didn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. He put, he put on a brave face, but you can tell he was changed forever. You yeah. get the feeling similar happened to Funny, because um, there's, there's one visit, there's one visit between Tish and Funny in the prison, where he's not his usual like upbeat self. He's you know he's on the edge, and you get the feeling he's probably had some trouble inside, like either violence or sexual assault or something. Yeah. It's never said, but it's implied, I guess. But. Yeah. Well, I think one of the, one of, another one of the reasons why um, Daniel's role in the book, he, especially at that time, was so significant was because when I was uh, reading that, the, the first thing I thought, the first, yeah, the first thing I was thinking of is that like, what he's describing must be what Fanny's going through and mm. what he's experiencing when he's in prison. So... When um, you see, when you, you read the scene where he's like really um, agitated and he's not as usual self, then you get like a picture into like why that might be. Yeah, because like, do you know what's happened to me in here? But he doesn't. It's kind of left um, left unanswered. But you can't, it's impl- You know what? You know from what's been said elsewhere in the novel what probably is happening to him. Yeah, you know? it's true. But yeah, all of that, like, I think it, like, kind of helps, kind of, like, helps to, like, help to build kind of, like, a social commentary mm. on, like, what it is for both Fonny and, um, and Daniel, the family, and Tish as, like, marginalised people, basically as, like, ethnic minorities, black people in America, in New York at the time. Mm. And it's just really, it's just really heart, heartbreaking because 
um, even though the scenes between them, um, seeing their love story was so great to read, at the end of the day, there was just like a lot, a lot of hope. And mm. like, I, I remember at the beginning of the book, I was reading a section where Tish was saying to that like, we're definitely going to get you out. We're doing everything we can. Like none of them ever thought about giving up. But again, like all of these forces from like outside the community, from like society, from the police, from the man, so to speak, yeah, were just like trying to drive them apart, trying to make their lives make their lives worse, just yeah. as a show of power, really, just to show that um, uh, this group is superior and you are not. Yes, and that's it. All stems from um, probably the, the most important scene is uh, between Officer Bell and Fanny and Tish. So when the grocery shopping, some guy gropes her ass, Fanny comes, beats him up, Officer Bell comes over, and he tries to arrest, he tries to arrest Fanny, but Tish is protecting him. And this, you know, this, for me, this is the most poignant part of the novel was the fact that he was going to arrest him, but then it took, like, that white lady, the Italian lady, to defend them, and yeah. to use, like, a like, white privilege, to use a buzzword. And that's what it took for them to not be arrested. Yeah. And it was, it, it, it was really cringe to read and watch that, but it was realistic at the end of the day that yeah. he need they needed validation from a white person to save him from getting arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That part that cut me up. That part did. Um, and then after that, because the officer bell dude is humiliated or whatever, or because his ego's bruised, he decides that he's going to send for Bonnie. He knows where he lives, and everything after that is orchestrated with the rape. Um, yeah, and then you find you find at the very end that when Victoria Rogers, the lady who was raped, when she, when she had the witness lineup. She knew it was a black man who raped her, but they put a lineup of how many men and finally was the only dark skinned black man in that. Yeah. And to think that was actually legal to do that is um it blows my mind. Obviously yeah. it's fiction, but I don't it's this feels so close to reality, this novel does. I don't it doesn't none of it feels far fetched to me. It's true, yeah, it's the truth. And like it's kind of like how you can see the inner workings of like things that are like make the lives of black people worse. And to take people's like freedom, the liberties away from them, but then at the same time to have like to for there not to be any consequences for those actions. Yeah. And I don't think like any. I don't think like the reason I sent the justice the novel for Victoria because like I think like she knows in her heart of hearts that it's not him. But in mm. order in order for in order for them to get to the truth, she has to relive all of that trauma again. Certainly not for Fanny and Tish or for any of the family. So it just, like yeah. I said, like, it just really doesn't sit right with me, just that, like, at the, even from the beginning to the end of the novel, this kind of thing is still there and still unsolved and still, un- and still unanswered, which is yeah. probably more true to life, to be honest with you. Exactly, it's, it's a frustrating read, but it's, it's, you know that this is the story of so many, so many Black Americans. It's true. Even, even now as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that was probably the big point of frustration was, as you said, with Victoria. Um, she couldn't be sure it was him. And it's such an ordeal, she just wants to forget about it. And the fact she didn't, her implicating Fanny was quite a passive thing. They just said to her, oh, look at this, um, look at this witness line and tell us what you think. And then based on that, his life is over. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was, she was used as a pawn, essentially, just for that officer to get back at Fanny. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can you do it? Between the film and the book, like, did you not say, like, any really big, big differences in uh, adaptation or interpretation? No, what I wanted to say was that I thought the ad- adaptation was very faithful, but maybe... The ad- so, I liked the film, loved the film. Um, also, can I just shout out, the soundtrack was 
amazing. I listened to the, when I first watched them. I listened to the soundtrack for weeks. It's uh, is it Nicholas Brittle, Nicholas Brittle, and who does the music for it? But I thought I thought the music was one of the best things about the film. Obviously, cinematography as well, and whatnot. But the adaptation isn't particularly creative, I don't think, um, mm-hmm. because I remember I watched the film pretty much just after finishing the book for the second time, and it was the majority of the dialogue is lifted exactly from the book. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so obviously it's faith, but it may be, if you've read the book, it, it was a bit, um, also the film's quite laboured. It's, it's um, I, did, I didn't notice it the first time I watched the film, but this time I, I thought it, was, it moved very slowly. You definitely have to be in the mood for it. You have to be proper, it's concentrating and focusing all the time. It's just very slow, very deliberate. The sex scenes, um, the scene between Fanny and Daniel, um, it's all just very slow and deliberate, I thought. Uh, but it's, a, it's an interesting film. I just didn't find it as, as exciting the second time around. What did you think between the film and the book? I think that the film was quite heavy on aesthetics. And I think mm-hmm. that was like, done quite deliberately so. Um, I think, um, like, I mentioned the prose. I mentioned, like, it's, I think it's quite a simple book to read in, sen- in a sense that, like, it's not, com- it's not really a complex story. But the way it's written is just like it flows. It there feels like there's a beat to it, and like when reading like all the like romantic parts of it was like was an experience. I think they tried to recreate through like having the music, for instance, or having like slow um, like slow pan shot between like funny and tissue facial expressions, and yeah. like um, them trying to like, really slowing down the scenes with Daniel and funny, for instance. So we can try and add some gravitas to it without it being over the top. So mm-hmm. after, read, after, after the first time I watched it, I didn't really get all that. But after I read it, I kind of thought maybe this is something they do to try and create the same feeling watching it as you would get when you're reading it. Mm. I, I think I agree because the, first time, the film was more striking to me the first time I watched it. So I watched the film first without having read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and the film, the film blew me away. But now watching the film a second time after reading the book for the first time, mm-hmm. it didn't hit me um, as hard, I don't think, because I kind of I need too much of what to expect. But it was probably one of the most faithful adaptations I've ever seen. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Yeah, it's like blow by blow, wasn't it? Literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, the last thing I wanted to say before uh, we move on, before we move on, mm-hmm. is that to any girls or gays listening, you need to find yourself a man who loves on you. The way Fanny loves on Tish. Yes, I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> now, they, those are probably like ride or die. Like, they were proper ride or die. Are we rating it? Are we doing ratings? Ooh. Ah, oh, I feel so odd rating this. Um, so the book out of 10, I'd probably give it uh, probably a 7, you know. So I, I enjoyed it. It's powerful content. It just didn't really excite me so much overall. But I think that's because it is, you know, it's quite, it's, the actual story is quite pedestrian because it, it's, it's supposed, this is like proper literature and it's close to reality. Yeah. And I don't think, it's, it's not supposed to excite you. I think it's just supposed to highlight injustices at the time and also that persists now. But I'll probably give it a seven, the book. The yeah. film, uh, I find the film hard to place, but I'd probably, I'd probably give the film an eight, I, I guess. How about you? I'd do the same scores but in reverse, so I'd give the book an eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, like I really enjoyed um, enjoyed reading it. I think it did everything it needs to do. It made me it made me feel something. It made me feel for the characters. 
Um, mm-hmm. It got me like interested in a love story in a book, which in itself is an achievement. <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, the book itself, I don't think it could really do much more. I think it's supposed to be like a succinct story. That's why it's quite short. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, one that, it's one that I will remember like next week or the week after when we're doing the God knows what it do um, in God knows where. So yeah, yeah um, and with the, with the film, I think if I had, if I'd watched it alone, I'd give it a higher rating. Mm-hmm. I think, I do think it was a bit too long. I think um, what you said about it being a bit late, but it's probably correct. I think for the book being the length of it, it didn't need to be two hours long. And yes. I think that like, it got maybe a slight bit overindulgent with kind of like the aesthetic stuff that they put in. Kind of zooming on people's facial expressions as well, yeah. Yeah, as like, before. yeah, just a bit too much of that. Maybe, maybe trying a bit too hard at places to you know, show what they're feeling and what they're thinking. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> like trying to, yeah, it's like trying to um, convey a bit too much mm. or trying to like do a bit too much. But uh, I enjoyed them both. Um, obviously, like most ta- most times when you watch an adaptation of a um, of a book, you pretend to prefer the book. And even though I watched it before I read it, I still prefer the book itself. So, right, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right on to Giovanni's Room. Uh, so, published in 1956, which is very bold considering it's <laughs> it's about gay love. Yeah. Um. So, a brief summary, able. If you, if you haven't read it and you're not really fussed about reading it, as a brief summary, it follows David, who is group in San Francisco and New York. Uh, his mother's passed. He grew up being raised by his dad and his aunt. Um, he goes from America to Paris to, to, to find himself, whatever. Um, and it just shows his, well, like a, a short period of his life. He lives as sort of, I want to say a bisexual or repressed gay man. Then he meets Giovanni um, in a, in, on Paris's gay scene. And it's about their relationship and the relationship of the friends around them. And he's also, he's also engaged to, to a lady named Hella, who is off in Spain traveling. Um, so it's, it's, it's about David and Giovanni's, um, I'd say tumultuous to use a cliche, yeah, tumultuous relationship. Oh, yeah, they're, yeah, they're, yeah, exactly. They're <laughs> Um, I just I want to start by saying I think David is a trash person. Well, um, I was about to say exactly the same thing. David is so uh, trash. <laughs> <laughs> if we were saying before um, to get you a man like funny, people <laughs> stay away from people like David. Like, let me tell you. These men, leave them alone. They are trash. They are toxic. <laughs> they need to leave us alone. Anyone who's listening, I beg or I beg everyone um, not to run it, not to get mixed up with a David in their lives. And if you are, leave them, <laughs> leave them immediately. <laughs> so his big problem is, it's difficult. I don't use too many modern terms because this was written in 50. So things were very different back then. But it is, his struggle is internalized homophobia, essentially. Yeah. And... We get a bit of his background when he was a kid, and I wonder if when Baldwin was writing it, he, if Baldwin, when he was writing, I'm trying to work out if he was trying to set the scene of David's childhood if it affects what he's like later in life. So we know his dad was an alcoholic, and the, the dad and the aunt used to argue all the time. Yeah. Um, and then David kind of turns a rebellious teenager, 
Yeah. And he hasn't got it with his mother. And his first um, affair with a man, or it's, it's like uh, in high school, he, he has that friend Joey in the summer. Yeah. And they sleep together, like kind of accidentally. And then he cuts Joey out after that and, and becomes like a school bully and bullies Joey. Yeah. Um, and he kind of puts a lock on that, on that little accident that's happened. Um, and he kind of suppresses that part of his sexuality, I guess. Yeah. Until he meets Giovanni years later in Paris. So David is friends with Jacques in Paris. And I think Jacques is, um, there's, there's like a sexual tension between them, which I think comes across as David leading Jacques on. And Jacques is seen as like a sort of a pervy older gay. Yeah. Um, and then, well, well basically, yeah, they go yeah. to a gay bar, they meet Giovanni. Um, and, and then David, who's always come across as sort of straight, but maybe in denial, and, and sort of other people in the scene have, have thought that of him. He starts talking to Giovanni, and then he realizes that he's attracted to him, like sort of like against or unwittingly. Um, and they, they start an affair um, in this, uh, on, on Paris's gay scene, and everyone's kind of watching them. Um, yeah. So the main characters are David, Giovanni, Jacques, his friend, and then um, Guillaume, who is, he owns the gay bar. Yeah. He's like a fat old, another fat old gay man. Him and Jack are sort of portrayed as like old, bitter like queens or whatever. They um, seem... And like predatory. Seem, like. <laughs> yeah, like Jack and, how do you pronounce it, sorry? Uh, Guillaume. Guillaume. Gui and then, oh yeah, Guillaume. Guillaume. It's like so, French William, yeah. Yeah, um, Jacques and Guillaume, I'm going to try and not pronounce that. <laughs> but they seem to me like that's, like, it's a bit of a stereotype, but you know, like older a bit like predatory or like mm. kind, of, kind of seeing a bit predatory like they would be interested in they're like older men they earn a, a certain level of wealth so they just want to be surrounded by younger men and mm. men who will like satisfy their egos and satisfy their like sexual lust yeah and not much more than that really yeah and then you contrast it with david and giovanni so giovanni is sort of described as like dark and really handsome Mm-hmm. Um, when David first sees him in the bar, he's a new bartender, and there's like a mystery about him. Everyone wants to know his business and, every, and, and everything. Um, and then there's a kind of jealousy when David and him get together, mm-hmm. because David is seen as someone who was he's he, so I think he's hang on the gay scene, but pretended to be straight or presented as a straight person. Yeah. And so people were interested when he when he and Giovanni got together. It's like oh, you backed him, I guess. Um, and it's just interesting what I liked actually. So after the first night they meet, uh, Guillaume, Jacques, David and Giovanni, they go to some, some restaurant for breakfast after the bar's closed. Yeah. And do you remember this is a conversation between Jacques and David and Jacques has basically sussed David out. So Jacques has always suspected that David was into men but hid it. Yeah. Um, and he's basically saying to him, you know, you should be happy that, you know, you, 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 you come to the realisation that you like good dudes and that, you, um, that you're, you fall in love with a man. You should be happy that you're discovering this now at your age of about 27 and yeah. not when you're 14, you're past it. Yeah. Um, obviously, he said it much more subtly than that, but we know that yeah. Dave is trying to pretend like he don't know what he's talking about. Yeah. But he knows exactly what's going on. Yeah. Um, but the, the whole novel, like all the bad things that happen are due to David repressing his sexuality and his internalized form of homophobia. He, he, he harms everyone around him, I think. Um, yeah, he does. I think... Well, because the interesting thing about Giovanni's room in general, especially like coming straight off the back of reading uh, If Bill Street Could Talk, but I think like in, in, um, If Bill Street Could Talk, that's like quite in your face, like things are spelled out to you 
I mm. think. But in this one, there's like a lot more subtlety in it. Mm, yes. And I think that, like, I think I agree with you that, like, all of the problems in David's life or all, the, all of the main problems that happen in the story are, as a result of, like, his repressed sexuality and, like, the desires, the feelings that he has for other men that, like, he doesn't quite know how to express in the right way. Mm. I see Giovanni's room as, like, the room that, like, that Giovanni and David, like, living together as basically just a, a metaphor for the closet, basically. It's um, oh, like being trapped and yeah, exactly. And, and it's it's where he goes. It's like it's so far removed from like from his normal life, from his life with Hella, from his his parents, his dad, and everything else. He can act out all of his um all of his sexual desires, yeah. all of everything that he wants to do with a man in that room, even and physically, because it's on yeah. the outskirts, isn't it? It's like, yeah. it's like out the way, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. mad. <laughs> And then when, um, when he's ready to go back to normal life again, he literally just opts and leaves it. Yeah. And, and um, everything, that, everything, everything that, that went with it, Giovanni, the room, everything that they built together, all the things that, um, mm. that they talked about the promise just got left in that room. And he just went, to, went somewhere else with Hella to go and live his life again, basically. Yeah. So I think we explained to anyone who's not on Reddit is that... Giovanni and David. So it's quite a short novel, so you don't get like heavily detailed scenes. Mm-hmm. But they have a passionate affair. But it's marred by sort of shame and guilt on David's part. He he feels like it's he's finally fulfilling what he's always desired, but he feels bad about it. So it it's kind of it's a source of like joy and a source of pain as well. I think that's mentioned a few times in the novel. Yeah. Um, and the backdrop of it, the backdrop of it is that Hella, his fiance, is up in Spain. He's asked Hella to marry him and she's gone off travelling and she's going to think about it. So when he's with Giovanni, even though they are together, his kind of get-out-of-jail card or his get-out clause is him saying to Giovanni, you know, maybe this can't last forever. I've got a fiancé waiting for me. Um, They have these quite philosophical conversations, like the first time they meet and also just throughout the relationship. Um, It's almost like, you know, when you read it, they're kind of like sparring about philosophical ideas. Yeah. Like Giovanni doesn't, he doesn't like women. He thinks that the fact that David has a fiance is silly, and he thinks the fact that the fiance is traveling in Spain doing whatever is silly as well. Yeah. Um, but I think that's probably Giovanni trying to cover his insecurity because he, 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 he loves David, like properly loves him, where she apparently yeah. walks on. Whereas for David, I think it's more about lust. And, he, and I think he, he's so like deep in the closet and he's so so committed to so trying to lead, lead like a straight life he won't um he doesn't let himself love giovanni back it seems to be more about lust yeah passion. yeah i and think giovanni but... yeah i think that like it's one of those things where david doesn't allow himself so like, i think giovanni um definitely like in no uncertain terms professes his love for david mm. and but he doesn't really do it back in quite the same way it's more, no. it's like, it, for David, it was like a relationship of convenience. But for Giovanni, yeah. I mean, um, he was by himself. He had just a job in a bar. It really was, it was the only thing. Like, it sounds bad, but it's the only thing that he really had in his life at the time. Mm. And, I think, and David was aware of that as well. Yeah. And still went on the way that he did. I think he's a, I don't know, is he a sociopath? He's sort of one of them, one of them things anyway. But he's, a, he's got no empathy because even... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you know when, you know you get the proper breakdown. So 
there's one there's one period where he kind of just wanders off and doesn't see Giovanni for a few days and Giovanni's pissed off. Then he does it again once Heller's come back to Paris. And also by the way, he didn't tell he didn't tell Giovanni Heller was coming back even though he knew she was coming back. And he went off for a few days, like three or four days. Giovanni thought he was dead or something. Mm-hmm. They bump into each other, they have that showdown, don't they? Um, yeah. Then by the way, the... sorry to cut you, Key. That when he comes into the um into the book, so um (laughs) (laughs) after um after David kind of like just ghosts basically ghosts Giovanni, um Hella and David are in a bookstore. They meet Jacques, and then in comes in Giovanni afterwards, and I was like, (laughs) this is the most awkward scene I've ever had in my entire life. Because David's trying to keep a veneer of, oh, he's trying to, he's trying to go on like these are just his casual friends. Yeah. Um, and Hella, she's at that point, she's kind of, she doesn't realize, she just thinks Giovanni is, you know, a good natured, really good friend. She doesn't realize that, you know, these are like, in a deep, deep, passionate relationship with each other. Yeah. Um, but David's yeah. awful. It's absolutely awful. It he hurts Giovanni. Well. I think um, he leads to Giovanni's destruction. He leads to his to, to Hella being very depressed because she she leaves him at the end when she finds out he's eventually gay. When she eventually finds out he's gay. Well, um, we don't know if he's gay. We find out that he's been having relations with other men. I feel like he is. He's he's had relations with both men and women. I feel like he's more inclined towards men, but he won't allow himself to fall in love with a man. To be honest with you, I think what his actual sexuality is is less important. That he clearly has these feelings towards men that he just doesn't know how to deal with. And in, yeah, the, um, in, yeah. in the story, like, um, there are scenes where, like, he's, like, he is, like, watching men, like, in the, sort of, like, the male gaze. And mm. he, like, he's really envious of them because, like, he sees them as being, like, masculine men or whatever. And it's kind mm. of, like, um, it's kind of exposing, like, an insecurity within him. Yes. And, uh, like, honestly... Like this book, you said it was written. It was um, it was published in like 1956. But honestly, yeah. I genuinely, I felt like it could have been written yesterday. It honestly, yeah. could, have, it honestly could have been. I think like, it took brass uh, balls to write it then as well. Definitely. Yeah, I even though I mean, obviously that it's in Paris, it's the fifties. Um, things work differently. But honestly, the way that David is with Giovanni. Especially because there is an age difference between them as well. It feels like it's just like it could have happened to someone yesterday. But instead yeah. of like them moving in with this person, what would happen is like um, maybe like a young gay man or a young guy who's, um, who's uh, more open and liberal with sexuality will meet someone older, will fall in love with him. And then that man will go back to his wife and tools and just leave them, leave them there with these feelings with everything that's happened. Yeah. The only way I could defend David was that it was, even though it was, I think in Paris, it's mentioned in the book actually. Also, how, um, so I'll come back to it. It's mentioned in the book that, uh, that it was legal to be gay then, but obviously it was frowned upon. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was still probably a crime in, in like, I'm sure it was still a crime in Britain, wasn't it? Cause, uh, and also in America. But the only way I could excuse how David was, was the fact that it was a different time. And that would, even though it was technically legal to be gay in France, there were very real consequences about being out as a gay man. Yeah. Um, so you could kind of understand how he was back then, but in that sort of liberal Paris nightlife circle, it seemed that you know the people were kind of living out as gay men, or certainly in that kind of um, social circle, without having to be in too much fear. If they, if they were discreet in the right places, 
it seems like they could have quite a liberal life for you know for the fifties. Yeah. Um, the one I think the most powerful scene in the book is it's the last the last time David and Giovanni meet. So David goes back to Giovanni's room when he's sort of securely with Helen now, and Giovanni just basically just addresses him down. He just tells him about himself and says, you know that you're so insincere and that he's basically the way you smile at me I've seen you give that smile to so many other people yeah and I think he, he probably I think he touches on how Americans are like compared to Europeans at the time yeah and that there's this kind of like veneer and yeah. you never know if you're getting the truth from them and there was this this massive world insincerity in that essentially he was so cruel because mm-hmm. he led me to believe that you were interested in me but all this time um it wasn't and you don't know I think he also he makes a point today with that he doesn't know how he feels and it's like he doesn't know what he wants either. Yeah. But there's a there's a kind of um there's a kind of a, a wickedness as a byproduct that comes against that and, and yeah. I really felt for Giovanni, who isn't perfect by any means, because you do see him as he seems quite misogynist misogynist um Giovanni just along with the other male characters in the book. Yeah. But um he like you know, he proper loves David for the doing for him, but then David's just like, well, you know, we're two men. What kind of life can we have together? But he's, yeah. he's got this this kind of um, he's got this kind of indifference about him, which is really yeah, wicked. yeah. I was gonna um call it like dismissiveness. Mm. Um, in that scene that you were talking about, um, like Giovanni was kind of of not Giovanni, sorry, David was of the kind of um of the opinion that like you always knew it was gonna come to this, basically, and that mm. like. I, I feel like in uh, David's mind, he'd or he'd put this uh, put this like this wall up because mm. in his mind he knows that like we're two men so, and that's the end of it. So it can't for him be anything more than like a dalliance. You know, when you were talking about the subtleties in this, mm-hmm. it's weird because so this, this is the third time I've read this novel, but the first two times I think I must have read it when I was nineteen, when I was like, like maybe twenty one, twenty two, mm-hmm. and. I know for a fact most of what I've seen in the novel now would, would have gone over my head at age. I think I just wasn't a deeper reader. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just full of these things that are on the surface. And, and what I like about this, and also, I know Baldwin, he flexes quite a lot on this about how we can just, how we know human nature so well, and like different kind of quirks, intricacies in people's characters that you wouldn't necessarily always be aware of or that you wouldn't think about directly, but that you'd kind of get a sense of them. Yeah. Um, how did you find. Because obviously I have what well, um, advanced French on paper, intermediate French in real life. But he, there's a lot of French in it, like yeah, a lot, um, and a lot of it. I kept thinking this isn't my standard vocabulary that you just happen to know. Um, how did you find that? Did it was it a hindrance, or did you pretty much was it straightforward to get what was going on? Or? I glossed over it to be honest with you. To be completely honest, all the French in it, I completely glossed over. I thought to myself, if it's in French, it must not yeah. be that important to, um, for me to understand what's going on. I yeah. did think about like um, like trying to Google it, but I was like, no chance. Yeah. Yeah, most of them were just lighthearted jokes and stuff. There's one, there's one joke he made about <laughs> the only one that I thought, okay, that's a bit of a, like, it's like a secret joke if you don't speak French or whatever. It was um, Giovanni, the first night that we meet him, he was talking about the men like in the region. He said that they have quite beautiful, like, you know, they have clean faces. But then he basically said they don't have clean asses, but that the ass part was written in French. Um, oh right, also, I see. Yeah. Also, there are a few there are a few typos as well in the French. I noticed. Um, but yeah, just little things. But I just I thought that, for yeah. I know he, I know Bolton lived in Paris for a long time, sorry, France for a long time. But um, I thought it was maybe a bit excessive the use of French in the um, 
Mm-hmm. But it, it has its uses, I guess. Yeah. But it's it's um when we did that episode on the little life, uh, we kind of quoted the article which questioned whether it was the the great gay novel. I definitely yeah. think Giovanni's room is the great gay novel. And actually, it's like it's a novella, really, isn't it? It's um it's quite short. Yeah. Um, yeah. This this is relevant in twenty twenty. It is. As, I do. Right. One thing I will say about David, although he is undoubtedly trash, there's no, there's no two <laughs> ways about it. I, I, I hate, really hate to say it, but there are some bits about his behaviour that I can identify with. So like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's better David than all of us, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And again, it's like it's uh, inter- it's like that internalized homophobia thing. Mm. And I've spoken on the podcast before about like being in a relationship when I was in the closet, and like mm. I think, and obviously that I had to deal with the fallout of that once the relationship ended. And obviously, real life is never going to be as dramatic as a book, but there were still like there were still those issues that I probably created because I wasn't ready to deal with my sexuality, which came out mm. in the book. And conversely, like in my life, I'm like 29 years old. I feel like I've been both the David and the Giovanni in certain mm. in certain points. One in one relationship that I had before I was, before I came out, and then another one was like in between in between like being in closet and coming out. So yeah, it's um I guess it's it's hard one because like uh, he's such like he's just so so like unredeemable really. And yeah, because, he's, like, he's not a nice person. Yeah, yeah, and he's just like so self-absorbed. Doesn't see any, doesn't see what anybody else doesn't consider anybody else's feelings apart from his own. But mm. at the same, by the same token, I feel like I definitely have acted that way before, and probably other people have as well. So it's like it's kind of like a damning indictment in some ways of kind of yeah. like our inner psyche when it comes to our life and our sexuality and things like that. The one thing he, uh, you know, in the, the big, the last scene to him and Giovanni, I should probably read it out, but I don't want reading out phrases, I don't want to read most. But um, Giovanni's basically said, said, it says to him, I'm paraphrasing heavily, he says that, you know, that, he, that David sees his genitals as something precious and like clean and pure. And he said, the mm. problem with you is that you, you, he said he's scared of the stink of love. Yeah. That, you know, that when you involve with someone like that, it is, it is dirty, it is messy, but I think David kind of wants to sort of stay clean of that but then his actions suggest differently and he, and he has led Giovanni on which he's like oh modern terminology whatever he's like he's led him on he has yeah he has he's allowed Giovanni to fall for him but then he's kind of he's he's he'd stopped himself he stopped himself from going too deep and the way David treated Giovanni has led to now we don't we don't know exactly what happened between Giovanni and Guillaume at the end you know it's suggested that he killed Guillaume yeah, um, but Gio- Giovanni goes on a downward spiral basically after David kind of um, gets rid of him, casts him off. Yeah, um, and the spiral ends up with him killing the the bartender, the vile bartender, the fat, ugly bartender. Um, yeah, and it's a bit because David shouldn't necessarily have to be a crutch because we see in the book that Giovanni he's too dependent on David. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, and it, that puts a lot of pressure on David. But yeah. I would say for David, there was no care or um, any any kind of sensitivity when David broke up with him. It was a case of oh, well, he didn't, well, he didn't, oh. he didn't play a cup with him. He ghosted him. <laughs> well, yeah, ghosted. But you know when they have that final talk, yeah, um, yeah. When Helen's back on the scene, 
And that's when he's kind of officially saying goodbye. But even then, he didn't feel any kind of tenderness. He felt lust towards him still because when he, before he's about to walk out the room for good, he feels like they might have one last night fling or whatever. Um, but he feels like repulsed by him, and I think the the pop, like the, him feeling repulsed is also him finding being you know having feelings for men being repulsive as well. Yeah, I agree um, with that. Yeah, but but I think Giovanni is a passionate person. He's someone yeah. you'd want to hang around with. Like he's a proper human being. Mm-hmm. Whereas David is just. The empathy part of his brain is just shut down. Uh, yeah, I agree. Person. Yeah, oh, I agree. Person. <laughs> it's a sh- yeah, it's kind of a shame that, like, because it is basically first person. Um, mm. It is first person, in fact. It's a shame yeah. that, like, we only got to see Giovanni as David saw him. Mm. So then, because that means that we only get to see parts of Giovanni that, like, he's interested in and that, like, he, that, that serves his own means, but, like, if I don't know, if we saw him Giovanni from another land, they could probably have like something completely different going on and there's other things that like that get glossed yeah. over. And I guess David David would be quite boring from a third person perspective, so it's probably best that he is the narrator, I guess. Yeah. Um, like he's complex, but he's complex in quite a dull way, I think. He's complex yeah. in an <laughs> exasperating way. Yeah. Um, Guillaume is horrible. We don't obviously Guillaume's very much a secondary character. Um but We've all met a Guillaume before. Yeah. Jack as well. We've all we've all met a Jack before as well. He's, yeah. And Jack's kind of is, is conflicted, isn't he? Because sometimes he's he's actually quite nice and quite loving, and he you know he can tell he's, he's he's got empathy to him, but then also he's a bit pervy, and also he he uses his like sort of his uh, economic status to get what he wants as well. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But he can um, see right through. He can see right through David, which is what I liked. Um, yeah. Right exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a great, a great thing about it is that, like, obviously in David's mind, he feels like he's dealing with, like, really complex feelings and issues and whatever. Mm-hmm. But, like, to Jacques, he's, like, he's just, like, to him, he's, like, just a classic closet case, basically. Yeah, he's, like, yeah, he's seen it all before, hasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, you know, I'd, not, I'd not thought of that, but that's a good observation, yeah. Um, yeah. But David is an awful person. I, I feel I feel sorry for Heather as well. Yeah, same. Because she, same. Kids, she was she was ready to settle down to have kids and just yeah. get on with it. And she, I think she wanted like a proper man as well, someone that would um, hold her tight, yeah, make her feel secure. And he yeah. couldn't do that. And at the very end, I think he he goes gallivanting in Nice, doesn't he? To um, mm-hmm. meets up with a few sailors, and then, and then I don't know if she just tracks him down or if she happens to bump into him. It's a bit unclear. But she sees him um, with with a man. And yeah. she puts the dots together. Yeah. But then she, he's given, he's given a very like biased to kind of what Giovanni was like. So she, she thinks like Giovanni is a bad person, but she doesn't see that, you know, he's a good person who's been corrupted and he just did as best as he could what was quite a harsh world. And yeah. you know, paired with a lover, a lover as damaging as David. Mm-hmm. A anyway, David can go jump off a cliff as well. I'm just piece of work. Let me ask you a question, Keen. Yes. Um, I've heard of Giovanni's room for a long time now, especially since like, I've been in and around queerness and queer space and queer art more often. And for mm-hmm. so long, I didn't realise that like David was a white man. I always assumed that Giovanni's dream would be about just like a black queer man. And I mm. think from watching, from sorry, from reading uh, Bill Street to reading Giovanni's room, 
one thing I noticed is that they're mm. kind of taking like because you know like I guess you could put them in two marginalized groups the blackness and the queerness and it mm. felt like that going from one book to the other do you think like is there a re- do you think there's a reason why Jane Baldwin didn't put that into one book to like have a book about like a black queer man rather than like divide them into two separate stories oh but interestingly though you know another country his third novel mm-hmm. that has a black queer character in it oh it does um, it does it. That was his third novel because we, we're going to read at some point, I guess. That will be sometime in the future. Yeah. Um, but no, I think basically, so in, I know his first few novels are so in order it was Content of the Mountain, which you've read, Giovanni's Room, and then Another Country. So in Content of the Mountain was all about black, you know, black, 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 black New York preacher growing up in Harlem. Mm-hmm. And Giovanni's room, he just went straight for a gay novel. But I think, you know what? I feel like with Giovanni's room, it might be a mar- might be more marketable. But he set it in Paris. Um, I think it would have maybe been too niche if it if it'd been about black gays in Paris mm-hmm. at the time. It was mm-hmm. already quite daring anyway. The fact it, it discussed quite it discussed homo- homosexual relationships quite very openly in the fifties yeah. as well. This is before my parents were born. This um, book um, was written and. I feel like maybe he would have taken on too much in one novel for that, I guess. Yeah, um, point. And also Beale Street was written much later, I guess, um, about 18 years after, much later. But, but uh, I can tell Beale Street, it feels like it's well, not a different writer, but like it's, you can tell it's a different period um, yeah. of it. And it probably goes, because he, he was a civil rights activist, wasn't he? But mm-hmm. it, it's kind of off the back of that part of his career, it must be mm-hmm. the kind of themes you get in um, in Beale Street. Yeah. Interesting. He's one of the, you know you have that you know you have those questions about who would you invite to a dinner party. He's definitely one I would invite. Yeah. No, um, oh, for sure. Talk, I yeah. And lots of bits of him on YouTube as well, which I need to get through. Um yeah. Great. Um I get we rated Beale Street, so I guess we'll need to get your rating for Giovanni's room. Ooh, now let me think, let me think. I'm probably gonna give it eight point five, I think. I think it's a solid novel. Um it's got a good structure, it's got a good story, it's got passion, drama, tragedy. Um, it's just it just works as a story. I think just from what well, aesthetically, it hits your heart, and it's um just just it's a it's a perfect novel to me, a perfect novella to me, I think. So I'd give it eight point mm-hmm. five. How about you? I'm gonna give it the same score as Bill Street. I'm gonna give Which it an eight. A, an eight, yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree with you. I think it was um, it was heartfelt. It was heartbreaking. I think um, the observa- observations that um, Jane Baldwin has managed to make with these characters is one that has has stood the test of time. Um, mm. Like I said, like I don't I don't necessarily know a full complete David, but I definitely know people who have aspects of David's character, and yeah. I, indeed, I we talked about before, like maybe like reading myself. Have my own <laughs> character. So yeah. yeah, so to do that, to do all that in one short novel is like no, is no small feat. Yeah, this is um, I think I know I keep going about when it was written, but it's what sixty-four years ago this was written. Mm-hmm. Absolutely mad. This would come yeah. out today, and it would it would be just as pointed. I agree. Um, I agree with that. So I think yeah. I, see, I think this, I think this probably is his most popular novel or one of them. Um, and. 
this is one the, the, the great pain novel, I guess. I'm sure there are others that we can probably find and, and read. Um, just a small anecdote that when I was in, I went when I was in Philadelphia on holiday, we did like a bus tour and we went for the gay scene and they had a, they had a little gay bar called um, Giovanni's Room. It was daytime, so it wasn't open. But I saw, I was thinking, ah, oh, you can see like have a light bulb moment. Yeah, um, yeah, great book, great book. Can't fault it. So yeah, it's been. Um... For me, anyway, one hell of a week reading these two, like, quite profound novels. <laughs> mm, yes. Um, they were quick read, but they were definitely left in the mind for longer, um, for longer than it took to get through them. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few more of his novels I want to read or reread. And I've read some of his essays, again, which I'd want to reread, because I probably, probably have a deeper understanding of them these days. But he wrote yeah. so much plays, novels, essays, and lots of vids on YouTube as well. So, yeah. our, our black gay hero, Mr. Baldwin. But <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's, um, that's, that's us done. We're Black Boy Joy. Uh, you can follow us on all good streaming platforms. That's uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We have an Anchor account as well that you can, um, that you can subscribe to where you can get our freshly delivered content. Um, follow us on Instagram, and that's at Black Boy Joy Podcast, and our Twitter is Black Boy Joy Pod. Um, the spelling is a bit weird, so you can follow the link, which will be at the end of this ep- um, at the, in the show notes of this episode. Um, if you have any questions, any queries, any book recommendations, um, Ooh, any yes. any questions that you want to ask either Kieran or myself or both of us, because if you ask one of us, you're asking us both anyway. Then please email uh, blackboyjoypodcast at gmail.com. And I think that is it. Anything you want to say? To you? No, just thanks for listening, guys. Uh, anyone's got any comments or anything about the books that they like or want to yes, discuss? Any observations, feel free, anything feel free to get in touch. With, please let us know. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, have our, we have our social medias. We could do with some love, hopefully, not hate. <laughs> <laughs> And um, if you do um, subscribe to Apple Podcasts, then please leave us um, a five-star review if you like what you hear. So, yeah, um, for another week, that's over. Happy birthday, James Baldwin. Happy birthday. Take care, everyone. Yeah, we'll see you next time.